0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn
1: more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S Y L V A N 29.com.
2: Just a quick note this series deals with sexual assault and suicide, so please keep that in mind when you decide when and where to listen. Also, to protect their identities, we've changed the names of some of the people we've interviewed. Hey, it's Io. you've got to be fucking kidding me host from the first half of Power Trip. Jesus Christ. What the fuck? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. In our first five episodes, Lily K. Ross walked me through basically the key points of her transformation from a girl growing up without a mom to a tripping hippie with plans to become a psychedelic guide via Harvard Divinity School to her truly horrible experience of rape by a shaman in Ecuador. Then Lily met her partner, Dave Nichols, and together they started digging into the underground world of psychedelic hucksters and frauds. If you haven't heard those episodes, you should definitely go back and listen. Yes, they are dark at times, but it is definitely worth your time to hear the brave and generous people who shared their lives with us in order to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen to you or me. Lately, Lily and Dave have been turning their attention towards something new. The world of the psychedelic above ground. The scientists and researchers and clinical trial participants and the whole big apparatus of people who are trying to take psychedelic therapy mainstream. They've turned up a lot of surprising and disturbing stuff. So the time has come for me to take a step back and turn this whole part two over to them. And that means Lily is, for the first time, going to say the big hosty thing.
0: This is Cover Story from New York Magazine, Season 1, Power Trip. I'm Lily K. Ross. So I have a new word in my back pocket, which is equipoise. And no, it doesn't have anything to do with horses. In the context of medical research, the idea with equipoise is that the researchers and the people that they're studying should be poised in a balanced way where they're not leaning towards the possibility that it is or isn't going to work. I'm telling you this because the stories that we're about to tell you are about scientific research, but they're also about researching a drug that is already associated with a whole culture and a style of dress and a type of music. A lot of people call it a movement. And it's a movement that, in some ways, my co-investigator Dave Nichols and I have been a part of.
1: When I had my first mushroom experience, it was profound existential relief. There was this moment of, like, participating in the mystery of life and death and their intertwining, and, you know, in this flash, that existential anxiety was just gone. I got back to my dorm room, and as I was coming down, I remember saying, like, this is going to be part of my life. And from that point on, I just remembered devouring any piece of psychedelic information I could get my hands on.
0: In the early days, there was this trickle of scientific papers coming out, which meant that people like Dave now had something that they could bring home to their parents.
1: I knew my parents' position on drugs. They were not hospitable. And I remember towards the end of my freshman year of college having a call with my dad where I said something to the effect of, you know how you and mom have been commenting about what a good mood I've been in for the past months? You know how you've been commenting that it seems like something has changed and I'm happier and more contented? Um, I tried mushrooms and I have a paper from Johns Hopkins that unpacks maybe some of what I've experienced. I know this sounds weird. I know this sounds scary. But look, there are buttoned up professionals saying that this stuff has real merit. It's one thing when your son is telling you that he's eating mushrooms and is feeling happier in day-to-day life. It's another thing when you turn on the morning news and you see footage of doctors and lab coats and, and the, the morning hosts that you're so familiar with telling you that there might be this promising new treatment that offers levels of healing that have never before been considered to be possible.
0: By the time Dave is 25, he is like a fully-fledged drug nerd, and he's one that people are paying attention to because he's doing things like helping run the DMT Nexus, which is this online forum for people who want to have really rigorous debates and discussions about drug experiences and science.
1: At the point where my parents saw that I was Putting together abstracts to present at conferences about drugs, there was a shift sort of to meet me. It wasn't just drug use, it was intellectual endeavors around drug use. I ended up presenting that at a conference in 2013. My name is David Nichols, and this presentation is a synopsis of the analytical research that... My mom proofread the abstract that I submitted, and my parents covered the costs for me. Phytochemical analysis is perhaps the very backbone of the collaborative research project.
0: That's the power of a lab coat. Dave could write a book called How to Change Your Parents' Minds. So jumping forward, what started out as nerdy conferences are now attended by thousands of people and promoted like music festivals. Universities and venture capitalist firms are pouring millions of dollars into research to see if psychedelics can be turned into medicine. Which means that they have to do a whole series of what are called clinical trials in order to win the approval of the FDA.
1: Looking across the psychedelic landscape, it's safe to say that MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder is the closest to getting approved by the FDA.
0: So for almost a decade, we've heard more and more stories that sound something like this. The benefit of talk therapy could be greatly improved with
3: an unlikely drug, MDMA, popularly known as ecstasy. I'm sure our viewers are thinking, wait, what? Ecstasy? Treating PTSD? How does that even
0: work? These MDMA trials are a really big deal. Not only are they the first psychedelic medicines that might be approved... But the process of approval is being watched by other members of the research community who are trying to figure out how to design their trials. So the main group that is advancing this research into MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD is a group called MAPS. That stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, And the executive director for MAPS is a man named Rick
2: Doblin. Uh, Preparing for this talk has been scarier for me than preparing for LSD therapy.
0: (laughs) So Doblin has a TED Talk, and in it, he talks about how in the 1980s, before he even started MAPS, he knew a woman named Marcella.
2: Who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder from a violent sexual assault.
0: In my years researching sexual violence, one of the things I've learned is that it's the leading cause of PTSD in women. And in his talk, even though he is not a therapist, he tells about how he sat with Marcella as she was able to more fluidly talk about what someone had done to her.
2: And so being able to share the story and experience The feelings and the thoughts in her mind freed her, and she was able to decide that she wanted to move forward with her life. And in that moment, I realized that MDMA could be very effective for treating PTSD. Now it's
1: 35 years. To say that Rick Doblin is passionate about MDMA for PTSD is by
2: 2050,
1: like saying we can
2: have a spiritualized humanity.
1: A deadhead is passionate about the Grateful Dead.
2: We'll have enough of a kind of spiritualized core that will, you know, steer the um, ocean liner of humanity away from the uh, iceberg that sunk Titanic and into the glorious future.
0: At the start of 2022, Doblin said, quote, We are no longer investigating whether psychedelics can help. The evidence is pretty clear.
1: In late 2018, a colleague of mine from Symposia, which is our psychedelic watchdog group, published an article about the clinical trials and the future of MDMA as a medicine. And while I was editing it, I was floored to realize that in the phase two trials, they were only talking about 100 people at the time. Like, what do you mean there's 107 participants? That's Nothing. It was almost like a balloon bursting moment, you know, like if everybody's talking about this as a done deal, surely it's not a done deal based on around 100 people.
0: In the news stories, you're usually hearing from a certain type of person, like a war veteran talking about how much MDMA-assisted psychotherapy helped and healed them. It's not like there's a list of participants that you can just call up and ask, hey, what was your experience like? But about two years ago, after Symposia had published another article, somebody who'd been through the MDMA for PTSD clinical trial wrote to Dave. All right.
3: Hey, guys. Hello. Hello.
1: Publicly, she'd been a sort of MAP success story, but in the subsequent months and years, she told Lily and me a lot more about what she'd experienced as a clinical trial participant
4: I made notes of things that I wanted to share
1: yeah so we'll we'll keep an eye on the clock and on you and just sort of yeah. check in if and as that seems like a thing cool. we read another public account of a trial participant that raised questions for Lily and me
3: okay I think it's recording
1: and eventually we got in touch with more participants
3: oh you wanted to
5: just to go right into that
1: there's a very small number of people who have been through those trials.
0: And we've gotten to know a handful of them, and we want you to meet three trial participants.
1: I think I actually
5: have to talk about the trauma to talk about <laughs> the rest. I experienced a lot of like physical and sexual violence in my life. Childhood sexual
3: abuse happened and went on for, for a while.
1: You have to remember that MAPS was looking to do research into severe PTSD and whether or not MDMA was effective for that, and so they needed people in the study who fit that description.
4: In hindsight, I had such severe PTSD, I couldn't bear to be in the same room as anyone.
1: The participants we spoke with had tried a wide variety of treatments.
3: Exposure therapy. Psychiatric drugs. CBT therapy. ACT therapy. People waving giant magnets around my head.
1: They were people who didn't engage in recreational psychedelic use. And the clinical trials seemed to present an opportunity For a less painful, more manageable existence.
3: Media articles saying 89% cure. MDMA is a cure for PTSD. First time that I found it, I brought it to my partner and I said to him, I said, this is it. This is what's going to fix me. And I said, I'm going to get into this study
5: and I'm going to get the medicine. Like, am I actually going to just not have PTSD anymore, like next Monday? I kicked the door down to be in the MDMA clinical trial.
1: Megan was the first MAPS clinical trial participant that I met. Like, I fought tooth and nail to get into that. Lily and I got to know her quite well over time.
4: I got into this crazy sport called inline speed skating.
1: How old were you at the time?
4: 19. Um, Leonardo da Vinci says, once you have tasted flight, you'll walk with your eyes turned skyward, for there you have been and there you will long to return. And that for me was skating.
1: Megan kind of fell into speed skating. She was in Canada and stumbled across some folks speed skating in a park. She borrowed a pair of red skates.
4: It was freedom. It was just being out of the prairies, chasing the wind.
1: The sport is kind of like NASCAR on skates. And they're gone. And it's kind of brutal, too.
5: Crash! No! 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 Oh my God!
1: People... Flying into barricades on the side of the course. It's intense. I
4: won 47 national titles and 16 Canadian records and broke a world record. And-
1: One of the stories that really sticks out to me is she got pulled over for speeding.
4: I got clocked doing 47 in a 40 zone on speed skates. What? I turned my body into a machine. Um, because I was invincible on skates. When I asked about my childhood, my first reaction is that I don't want to talk about it. Totally. Um, As a teenager, I shut down and I shut up. And that was how I coped, was I turned into a ghost.
1: Megan told us about some rough experiences growing up, including a predatory coach.
4: Started cutting my arms open over a mouth test when I was 15. Um,
1: She tried to kill herself before she was 20.
4: I coped with a lot of things by just driving myself into perfection. I played in six bands and had a 95 average at school and was on five different sport teams and was recruited nationally in three different sports. I moved out and went to vet school and I was sexually assaulted in my third year of vet school. And that was really what, um, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in that moment.
0: And over the next couple of years, she's seesawing back and forth between excellence and athleticism and crashing. I
4: went from having a 99% average in radiology to not being able to function. And, And during that time, being told over and over and over again that I just needed to pull myself together and be fine and just to grow up and get a real job.
0: At this point, one thing she does know is that
4: I couldn't bear to be in the same room as anyone. And, and the thought of being vulnerable and touched was terrifying.
0: Even her own coach.
4: He would coach me over the phone every night and he'd tell me how it was supposed to feel. And I'd close my eyes and I'd feel it in my body. And then I'd go out the next day and skate it. And then I'd call him that night and tell him how it felt. And we did that for years.
0: And then things started to really crumble.
4: I was skating and I was holding on to skating because it was all I had. Um And so I subluxated discs in my back and and just had like crazy, crazy, crazy injuries, um, multiple concussions, (sighs) fractured bones and kept training on them. And I just, I didn't give a damn. For me, I always just figured I'd die on skates and I did not care. And so I went from being this world-class athlete to being trapped in a body that was broken, sleeping in my car and sleeping on the street. I found doctors who were willing to let me work for them in exchange for treatment.
1: She finds a psychiatrist.
4: Who changed my life. He's the one who diagnosed me with PTSD.
1: She had tried multiple psychiatric drugs and he supported her getting off them. And yet...
4: It was just painstaking. Painstaking progress. I was terrified. I would wear a hoodie and baggy clothes and I'd flinch when he moved and he couldn't stand between me and the door.
1: And at a certain point, he retired. He retired.
4: Like he, he looked at me, he just said, I have no, I don't know where to send you. And that's when I got the call for the MDMA clinical trial.
0: So let's back up for a second. When a drug is going through clinical trials, there's usually three phases. The first phase is about determining dosage and getting basic safety data. Then you have phase two, and phase two is continuing to really emphasize the safety and the side effects of the drug. They are also getting a picture of, like, is it worthwhile to spend all the money going to phase three, which is a much larger process?
1: Megan got referred to a MAPS clinical trial almost 10 years ago. So that was the phase two trials for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. And those trials were actually a bunch of tiny research studies across numerous sites around the world, which they've pooled together. And some of those sites only had a handful of people. So in reality, we're talking about unusually small studies, even for phase two.
0: Megan ends up at the Vancouver site for the phase two clinical trial, and she's one of only six participants.
1: There's all sorts of screenings that happen before the trial starts. So you have to show up and do different sort of
4: tests. You go through a checklist and it's like, have you ever been in a natural disaster? Well, yes. Have you ever been sexually assaulted by someone close to you? Yes. Have you ever thought that you were going to die? Yes. Have you, like, I basically
1: ticked off every single one of them.
4: And at the end of it, they said, yeah, you're in. And I said, okay. And I'm like, now what?
1: Megan gets to the study site and ends up meeting her therapists, who are a married couple named Richard Jensen and Donna Dryer.
0: Megan has declined to name her therapists, but MAPS has made their identities public.
1: Jensen has been described as looking like an Ewok, a sort of larger, softer, fuzzier character. And Dryer is a serious therapist cut with warm affects when Megan ends up meeting them for the first time Donna gives her a hug
4: you're here and then she threw her arms around me and I freaked out because that is not cool in Megan world um
0: touch scary bad
1: psychiatrist eh. so the hug is a huge deal for Megan
0: the way these trials are designed is that you have three MDMA sessions over about three months And in between sessions, there's integration sessions, which give the participant a chance to unpack and process some of what came up for them in their MDMA session. The MDMA session's eight hours long, and then the participant will often sleep on site. For Megan, the sessions were happening in a therapist's office.
1: The room is tiny and cramped, and it's in a basement.
4: Um, And because it's a basement, the window is at the top and it was this beautiful stained glass. And then underneath the stained glass, they had it so that there was actually a bed.
1: There's like a twin bed in the center of the room. And then there are these armchairs off to either side.
4: And then it's really weird because you're facing the foot of the bed and then there's like the MAPS camera straight in front of you and off to the left.
1: The cameras are there so that the sessions can be recorded to make sure that everything goes according to protocol.
0: Remember that the point of these clinical trials is to show the FDA that using MDMA in combination with this specific type of therapy that's happening in these rooms is actually helping people. Can you tell us about that very first session?
4: It was quiet. There was no one else there, which really helped me. Like, I, if I hear outside noise, I get really jumpy in sessions. Um,
1: her therapists are consulting this clipboard. They're taking music? her temperature and her like, blood pressure. They're unwrapping the MDMA and sort of crinkling the packaging.
4: I remember being terrified. Like, terrified to the point of not knowing if I could actually take MDMA, knowing that I would be that vulnerable.
1: If you've ever seen news coverage of psychedelic therapy, you've probably seen the images of somebody lying serenely on a couch or a bed with eye shades, headphones. Perhaps the therapists are holding a hand. It all looks very serene and tranquil. When Megan describes her experiences of MDMA therapy...
4: It was a full-body experience. Like, just somatically, it hit me. Um, That feeling of losing control is terrifying. And there's no stopping it once the drug's in your body. I was folded over and shaking. um, And just, what's going on? What's going on? Tell me what is going on. I just remember saying over and over again, you're safe, you're safe, you're you're safe, you're safe. And just checking and checking and checking and checking and checking and checking. And then just, like, I was in the session.
0: In those eight hours, Megan talks. Sometimes she's nonverbal. Sometimes she cries. She's processing trauma.
1: Richard and Donna made Megan feel cared for in that first session.
4: Really mindful about ensuring food, which really helped.
1: They were bringing her
4: snacks. Cheese from Costco and Pink Lady apples. Um... Sometimes she'd cut up some salami. I really appreciated that because I forget to do that kind of stuff. It was like this little safe nest.
0: At that point, things felt safe. We'll be right back. From New York Magazine, this is Cover Story. It's not easy to quantify somebody's trauma. It's like if you were supposed to answer people with a number when they asked you how you're doing today. But in these PTSD studies, they have to find a way to measure how bad someone's PTSD is at the beginning and end of the study so they can figure out if their treatment is working. So they use a tool called CAPS, which stands for the Clinician's Administered PTSD Scale. And the point of it is to figure out how often and how severely the participants are experiencing PTSD symptoms in general, and then also in relation to specific events. It would be questions like, how often are you experiencing intrusive thoughts? Or flashbacks, or nightmares? When it does happen, how severe is it? Each of these answers is a number answer. So by the time you get to the end of the assessment, they're able to add those numbers together and the final number is what gives you your CAP score. In the phase three trial, for the two participants that we've spoken to, they were asked to focus on one traumatic
3: experience. I know for me, the abuse happened and went on for a while.
1: We're calling them Mel.
3: I was a mess. I
5: was a shit show,
3: I, you know?
1: And Leia. Scientists were, like, poking at my trauma
5: and, like, waking things up.
0: Mel and Leia were at study sites in different parts of the world, and they both found their first experiences to be Exactly the kinds of experiences that
5: participants hope to have. The first session was amazing. Basically, there was, like, just this, like, profound feeling of safety. And they were able
0: to confront and process and work through some really
3: challenging traumatic memories. It was so beautiful because
5: everything was revealed. I think I just, like, chronologically went backwards through time and like unloaded all of the traumatic experiences. It just came out and it was the first time I'd ever been able to talk about it. I felt like I had been choking on it for years. And I I finally like got it out.
3: It was literally like peeling back a curtain. And being able to see everything. And I had this sense of, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to make it.
5: It's really nice to actually remember the good parts.
0: Both Mel and Leia were really hopeful going into their second sessions. But the sessions themselves
3: were a lot more intense
1: Both of them were given the option to take a higher dose and did.
3: You know, you do have an option if you want to go higher or stay lower. Um, More is always better, right?
5: I remember kind of like questioning the logic of that. Because I was like, do I need to? (laughs) Okay, you're the bosses. (laughs) Like, I don't know anything about this.
3: I have found now that more is not better, especially with MDMA.
5: My second session was, like, brutal. It had, like, a lot of visuals right at the beginning, but they were, like, terrifying. And I had this sensation of falling backwards into, like, the gears of a gigantic clock. And, like, I was was getting, like, crushed by the gears. That second session, I just felt every
3: ounce of shame that there was. You know, I fought the whole time. My body just wouldn't stop. It was awful. And I didn't come out of it. Like, I didn't get to the other side of it. I just went home. More firm in my belief that it was my fault. That I had this evil thing living inside of me that was going to come out if I didn't watch it. So then it was just head down and plow forward to get to the next medicine session that was going to fix that
5: felt like someone took my fucking drama history and, like, beat me over the head with it for, like, seven straight hours.
1: When Megan describes her second MDMA-assisted therapy session, which was years earlier, it's also incredibly intense. She ends up reliving a sexual assault from her past.
4: I had an incident when I was racing in on the World Cup circuit in Italy where I'd been sexually assaulted. And so that was what was reenacted in my second session. It was discussed before session two that they wanted to break through. I remember fighting. I just remember fighting and get off me and and just fighting and trying to get them off me.
1: At one point, she ends up kicking a therapist off of the bed.
4: I remember her body flying them, and like she fell off the bed. And then I remember my male therapist locking me in a bear hug from behind. I can't stress how weird it was, like beyond weird. Like I can't stress what it's like to be close to someone because I wasn't. I physically cringed from everyone, and yet it was his arms around me and it was feeling his chest and like feeling the weight of his body. And I said to him at some point, like he's just he's this short, stocky, solid guy, and I thought that was safe. It's a really big relief to have so much pressure in the world and just be trying to survive and then to be in a space where i could just close the office door and for a day and a half in my life i'm in this like tiny little sh- incubator and that's what we called it too. like it's like a little incubator it's like being wrapped in a blanket and not being afraid
0: all of the participants told us that moving toward their final session they felt more and more cracked open. So at the start of the trial, they had measured their PTSD around specific traumatic events, but now there was more coming up than they had anticipated and more coming up than they felt they could control or process in the time they had in the trial. There was just no way to get through all of this before the trial was gonna be over. So, like, what were they going to do with all of this when they're no longer sitting in these nests with the therapist that they've bonded to so intensely on MDMA?
5: As I was coming down off the medicine, there was just this, like, deep knowledge that something had been, like, left wide open and completely unresolved and, like hell was inside of me and was only halfway out and it got stuck. I felt like I got stuck and I don't think they assessed the dangerousness of the territory that they were leading me in. I had this really strong and like terrifying feeling that I was like hopelessly dependent on them. And, like, impending, like, fear that, like, this was not getting resolved and I wouldn't be able to, like, survive it, basically. I remember
3: at my termination session saying to them, like, I seriously contemplated, like, gluing myself to this chair and refusing to leave until you continue to see me. Like, you know, and and I said it jokingly, but I I was
5: serious, From the moment I came down from my third MDMA session, I kept saying, like, we can't finish, we can't leave it like this. Like, I, I cannot end the study. And I was fucking sobbing and I was, like, begging them to find a way to not basically kick me to the curb.
3: You know, I, I've i equated it to, um, like, someone did open heart surgery, you know, and they tore open my chest and... They repaired the little damage in the heart there, but then everyone just walked away from the table and my chest was still wide open. No one's going to survive that.
1: (laughs) Here's the confounding thing. A few weeks after their final integration sessions, both Leia and Mel were asked to take the CAPS test again. The one that asks you to focus on one specific event... And when they took this test, their answers indicated that their PTSD diagnoses were gone.
0: So for Megan, she'd come into the trial with extremely high PTSD scores. And by the end of the trial, her scores had improved a lot. So much so that it felt like she was making real progress. And yet she still had this feeling of having been cracked open. So we spoke to MAPS about this, and they said that they understand that ending the therapy is difficult. They've adapted their latest consent documents to warn participants that, quote, your PTSD symptoms may get worse during the study. They also agree with other researchers that the CAPS isn't a perfect tool for measuring PTSD. But the FDA requires that they pick one, and CAPS is the accepted standard. The question is, When there's a mismatch between CAP scores and what participants say they're experiencing, what do you do? Other researchers that we spoke to said that it's on MAPS to find ways to track that information and to get it out there into the scientific discussion and into the public. We're going to talk more with MAPS researchers about this in the next episode. Megan told us that her therapist used to say something she thought was pretty smart. He would say trauma's not a zit.
4: Trauma's not a zit. You can't just squeeze it and get the pus out. And that really resonated Is like, you can't just excise trauma. You can't just pretend that you can cut it out and be like, everything is fine now.
0: By the end of their treatment sessions, neither Megan nor Leia nor Mel felt like they were ready to stop their therapy MAPS told us that the research therapists are technically allowed to continue therapy with participants without MDMA once the trial is completely over, but it's at the therapist's discretion. So Megan, Mel, and Leia all asked for more therapy, and they all got different messages. Mel's therapist told her no, that it would be a conflict of interest to treat her after the trial. Leia's therapist told her no, and then later told her yes, which she found confusing. We're going to come back to that. When Megan ended her treatment sessions, she was completely broke and desperate for help. She says even though she was still involved in the trial because they hadn't completed the year-long follow-up yet, her therapist told her that they would keep seeing her for free.
1: They live on Cortez Island, which is a small island off the coast of British Columbia.
4: I started looking for places where I could go.
1: It's incredibly remote. You can only get there by essentially island hopping using small ferries.
4: I couldn't afford a rent, but I have a background in agriculture, so I started looking to see if I could just, like, be on a farm somewhere.
1: She winds up working out, like, a barter agreement with a guy who owns a farm relatively close to where her therapists live, and she figures that this will allow her to have a place to live, but also she's seeing Richard and Donna for therapy, biking to their house, Eventually, she starts seeing them for dinner.
4: They'd been my therapist, and all of a sudden, like, I'm seeing them socially. And so we talked about that, and we talked about boundaries. And and the only boundary was, can you just give us a call before you come, just so we know.
1: At that point, the lines blur even more. Megan starts helping Richard and Donna out with elements of the clinical trial— She has a science background. In fact, she wrote an honors thesis in college critiquing pharmaceutical clinical trials for psychiatry. So being Megan, she says, hey, like, I think I might be able to lend a hand.
4: Like emails from MAPS to my therapists, I was answering them. At one point I wrote, they needed like medical information about me. And so I like typed it up and just sent them back the email. I'm like, here you go. Um, So yeah, I was my own research assistant.
1: Megan should definitely not have been doing any work at all on a clinical trial she was the subject of.
4: They were grateful. There was expressions like it was like they couldn't do it without me.
1: Megan doesn't really do half measures. She wanted to, like, not just experience her own healing, but to be able to do well for these people who were putting this novel revolutionary therapy under the microscope in the hopes of bringing healing to the masses.
4: They spoke often about how what they're doing is so far beyond psychiatry. Like, it's this new experience, and this is beyond what anyone can understand. It is so wonderful and so amazing.
1: Her own healing and her own improvements were, in some senses, bound up with the world-changing research that she was a part of.
4: And I was just, I became a part of their lives.
1: And a year later, she finds herself on the stage at a psychedelic conference, giving accounts of her own healing journey. So
4: weird. I, I spent so many minutes trying to visualize what it would be like, actually coming out of the participant with MDMA. I think it was the first day at the conference. Being in the clinical trial for me was a privilege and a gift. It was a step forward. And I view it as a privilege to keep walking that step forward, to help others do the same.
1: She approached it seriously, as a representative of what MDMA-assisted therapy had to offer the world at large.
4: I was the one who would wince and freak out and dive under the table with a hug. I learned how much I craved as much as I feared touch. And in the MDMA sessions, I was hugged. There's an awful lot of hugging to make up for 36 years. And I am grateful every single day now for those hugs. Did this little talk and then like, had like the big hug with Rick Doblin at the end. And look at me, I'm like the woman who's afraid of touch. And now I can like hug the founder of MAPS. MDMA is not a cure for PTSD. It is a highly, highly effective treatment. And I am living proof that we don't need to say that it's anything but a highly effective treatment. And that, in and of itself, is a headline.
0: As far as the audience in the room was concerned, Megan was a quintessential MAPS success story. She was like Marcella 2.0, a new person to point to and say, look at how this medicine works. But there was a lot that had been happening back on Cortez Island that the audience did not know about.
1: Going back to when Megan first moved to Cortez, it seemed like things were moving in a positive direction. But there's also this one evening where there's like a a group of people that come to Richard and Donna's house and they're discussing some of their lineage and the people that they learned from. And they all start talking about this maverick Mexican psychotherapist named Salvador Roquette.
4: How amazing Salvador was and how what a gifted healer he was and how brilliant he was and that he broke people down and reconstructed them and that he would, there's no such thing as a bad trip, only a difficult trip.
1: You might remember Salvador Roquette. He's hailed by his fans as able to achieve rates of healing that have never been replicated.
4: He was this guru that was posited on, he's on par with like Freud and Forenzi and Jung and then there's Salvador Roquette.
1: You might also remember that he tortured people on behalf of the Mexican government.
4: The more the patient suffers, the the better the job the therapist is doing.
1: Richard Jensen was actually Salvador Roquette's interpreter. He venerated Salvador. Richard Jensen has actually written a fair bit about Roquette. He presents himself as Roquette's son and father and sort of plays around with all of these familial relationships and those ideas come to bear on the way that he's engaging with Megan.
4: I mean, they called themselves Mummy and Daddy. This is reparenting, and this is good, and just keep doing this, and this is appropriate and acceptable, and they openly called me their experiment.
1: Boundary violations were in service to growth.
4: They're breaking me down and building me up again. He started touching me. This was September of 2015 he started rubbing my neck and started rubbing my shoulders and I froze I responded to it by I took my car and I bolted off the island and I have all these emails begging me to come back and it's all a misunderstanding and please come back and we love you and we care about you and we can sort this out it's hard to say it but there were a lot of positives in my relationship with my therapist there were moments of laughter and there were moments of support and there were moments of healing and that is part of the mind fuck. so I went back And that was a shift for me. Like when I, I drove up to their property in September and I knocked on the door and it was just like, the prodigal son has returned. And then they fed me and I stayed there and it felt like I'd made a choice to go back to them. And I suppose I did. It progressed from there he wanted to walk and so it was a couple times a week and I actually offered to walk with him because I was like that's something I can do that's something I can give back to them and we'd walk and we'd talk and he wanted to hold hands and so we'd hold hands and we'd walk and he started losing weight and he started getting more energy he takes just handfuls of pills every day like vitamins and so they asked me to sort his vitamins for him and like beg his vitamins for him once a month And then I was doing all the writing with him. And then I started cleaning for them.
1: She was recovering from another head injury at the time. Megan's prone to concussions from her days as a speed skater.
4: And so just the dependency just kept on building. It became extremely normalized to curl up for hours on the sofa and cuddle together.
1: We reached out to Jensen and Dreyer for comment. Dreyer declined to speak with us, and Jensen never responded. Megan's memories of that time are very specific.
4: When I talk about it being like a frog boiled alive, yeah. By December, he was touching me. By January, the first time he kissed me, it was um, like tongue and mouth. Um, March, digital penetration. He laid his futon out into a bed in front of the fireplace And he, he reached his hand to my vagina and I had a massive trigger and was on the bed in a fetal position, shaking, totally dissociated, totally out of it. And I was like, you know, maybe if I could just push through this, maybe this is like, he openly called it exposure therapy. Like that was how it was, it was framed as exposure therapy. The first time we had physical intercourse was in March of 2016. He was insatiable. May of 2016. He called me selfish and seductive and a manipulative bitch because I said no.
0: I've looked at a bunch of emails between Richard Jensen and Megan from a time when she had left the island for a little while. And it's really clear to me that he's a master manipulator. He's very good at making it seem like every issue that she's raising is all in her head and she's hurting herself, not that he's hurting her. There's one where Richard just writes to her saying, sorry to say I have lost my patience with you. I will be in touch when and if it is regained. And Megan writes back this very thoughtful, very clear attempt to assert boundaries about how she wants to be treated and she says, "quote, until my no matters as much as your yes and vice versa with both being expressed, understood and heard clearly, neither is respected. This isn't respectful to any of us and all of us are being hurt." Richard's response begins, "Dear Megan, You are a powerful storyteller. Your stories are full of strife and abuse. You have been telling them for a long time. I have sought to comfort and assist you in dealing with the consequences of telling those stories. Now you are telling them about me. I do not experience them as related to reality. The way that he denies her sense of reality as though that's the thing that's hurting her rather than the way that he's treating her. He says in the same email, quote, frankly, I feel enticed, rejected, and condemned. Nothing has ever happened between us that wasn't fully consensual, which like Richard Jensen has admitted to having a sexual relationship is how he frames it. And as her therapist, there is no such thing as a consensual sexual relationship that doesn't exist. That's not a thing. When Megan forwarded these emails to Dave and me, she put a note at the top. She says, quote, it's really hard for me to read these, by the way, both just seeing how messed up I was, torn to the clarity of saying no, and then the fear trying to assuage. Please keep in mind how utterly dependent I was at the time. Megan's response at the end of all of this is to write back to Richard, saying, You are right, and I am sorry. I am horrible and can't even see what's true anymore.
1: So you remember that talk that Megan gave about her experiences as a clinical trial participant?
4: I was the one who would wince and freak out and dive under the table with a hug.
1: Well... She gave that talk after a whole year on Cortez Island.
4: I learned how much I craved as much as I feared touch. And in the MDMA sessions, I was hugged. There's an awful lot of hugging to make up for 36 years. And I am grateful every single day now for those hugs. There I was on stage, and um, it was one of the moments where The split between what was going on and my speaking at that event really hit home.
1: So when Megan finishes, a MAPS researcher who she's familiar with sees that something isn't quite right.
4: And she literally just like got me out of there and just said, would you like to come meet my Malamute? Megan loves dogs. I just wrapped my arms around a Malamute. It's like hugging a polo bear that happens to be a dog. I came really close to telling her what was going on. And I didn't because how could I in that venue? How could I having just like done that presentation? I know in myself that that kind of ability to present is very much a protective, like that's how I have coped and survived. But outwardly, I can appreciate how that would raise a lot of questions. It was such a facade. And I did it knowing it was a facade, and I did it wanting it to be true.
0: What happened to Megan was singular, but also not. The other participants also ended the trial feeling utterly dependent on the therapists who had given them MDMA and they each
3: suffered in their own ways before I started the trials I thought that really I was just a part of an alien experiment and I lived inside a fishbowl and the aliens would reach down and be like let's see what happens if we fuck with this and then they would move something and that was my life and now all of a sudden everything is real I know that everything that happened to me is real. I know that what I think is real, what I feel is real. Like, everything is real. And holy cow, is that overwhelming.
5: For months after the trial ended, I would have these fucking visceral nightmares every fucking night, way worse than I had ever had before. And I, I couldn't fucking wake up out of them. I just, I'd just stay stuck in these nightmares. I was just a mess.
3: Suicide became a, a moment-to-moment option again. And now it was coupled with the fact that I had been given a miracle cure and wasted it. That I had tasted what life is supposed to be like. And somehow I managed to blow it.
5: And so, like, the whole fucking end of the study was me, like, insisting that they see what was happening to me after the trial. I emailed them in crisis probably three or four times. Um, I was, like, extremely suicidal by then.
3: I didn't tell them that I was having a hard time. I didn't share any of that. Um, I just reached out to them. I just... I just needed contact with someone who knew my story. I just, I just needed to touch base. Crickets.
1: What did that feel like?
3: It was devastating.
1: I think the biggest overall takeaway from these three experiences is that the way that MDMA therapy is being discussed does not match the experiences of these participants.
5: I was one of the people who looked cured on paper.
1: All of them had really bad and difficult experiences in the trials, and none of them could find those experiences represented in the published papers.
5: Yes, that's like a problem with research in general is like, you can only capture the things you measure when it comes to data. And the things they measured made me look pretty good on paper.
0: It raises the question, what else wasn't captured on paper?
4: And I said, you know, Rick, I'd really love to see the data. Like, I was a clinical trial participant, and I would love to see the clinical trial data. Do you think you would send it to me?
0: Oh, and he said, sure. That's next time on Power Trip. Cover Story is a production of New York magazine. Power Trip is co-created, produced, and reported by David Nichols and me, Lily K. Ross. Our senior producers are Marianne McCune and Whitney Jones. Also produced by Taka Zen, Liza Yeager, Nor Bazidi, and Io Tillett Wright. Our executive producer and editor is Hannah Rosen, with additional editing help by Nicole Hill. Sound design and scoring by Brandon McFarland. Additional sound design by Sharif Youssef, who also mixed the show. Cover story's theme music is by Santa Gold. Additional music by Lynx Demuth and John Ellis. Special thanks to Legal Minds Alyssa Cohen, Jillian Robbins, and Samantha Mason, and also to Russell Hosfeld. Power Trip is also produced with Symposia, a nonprofit watchdog group. For a deeper dive into some of these issues, visit symposia.com slash powertrip, which is P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A.